Hello and welcome to Tuesdays at APA Chicago, our monthly after-hours lecture series held at APA's Burnham Conference Center. My name is David Morley. I'm a senior research associate at APA and host of Tuesdays at APA Chicago. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. Selected past programs are also available as podcasts, and you can see the APA website for additional details. Tonight we have with us Robert Rotenberg and John Hedrick. Bob is the Vincent DePaul Professor of Anthropology at DePaul University, where he has taught for over 30 years. And his research specialization is the cultural meaning of urban space, especially in large metropolitan areas. John is an attorney and consultant with a broad background in government and business regulation, who currently focuses on community development and urban design issues. Planning professionals often view design guidelines and review processes as useful tools to communicate local preferences and resolve issues. Bob and John are here tonight to discuss contrasting perspectives on the benefits of design review. They will be presenting case studies of how design standards work to shape the development decisions by stakeholders in Cook County, Illinois, and they will summarize the regulatory background and recent developments in the Chicago area regarding best practices in utilizing design guidelines. Please join me in welcoming Bob Rotenberg and John Hedrick. Thank you, David, for the kind introduction and your gracious hosting tonight. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, looking around, I see quite a mix in the audience, some uh, familiar faces from the Design Review Network. And for some of you, this will be some familiar issues, but it's our first chance to hear about some of Bob's recent findings. And uh, for others, I know we have some uh, design experts in the audience, audience as well, but I'll start with a little broader background about some of the design review issues. And uh, overall, for the benefit of the podcast and collaborating with uh, Bob, I've been encouraged to throw out most of my new slides, so we'll have more time for Q&A and talking. So. Uh, starting out, though, with a brief commercial about the uh, Chaddock Institute at DePaul. The Chaddock Institute mission includes research on planning and development issues with uh, some focus on transportation issues. Uh, we have Professor Schwederman in the audience here, many of you know for his uh, expertise in that area. And um, you know, just as an example of some of the publications here, you'll notice we included the top 20 transit suburbs study which uh, is, is being noted in a Chicago Magazine article that's coming out in the April issue. So it's uh, satisfying to see that word getting out because there's a strong design component in that study of the uh, transit stations. But the uh, MDRN network is somewhat unique in that it is an ongoing program that is now sponsored by Chaddock. And uh, we'll talk about more that a little more later. Did want to start with a quick overview of tonight. Our overall perspective will be looking at best practices in design review. And uh, I'll start talking about some various design review approaches. Bob will follow with his commission-based study. And then uh, we'll talk about some potential improvements that uh, will be considered by the, uh, the group in MDRN. And um, finally, have some chance to talk about the broader theory and implications from some of these findings. 
and um, have set aside a good bit of time for me to pose some questions to Bob, and because of the podcast uh, limitations, we will have more uh, open-ended questions at the end. So if um, you have trouble understanding anything, make some uh, polite gesture, and I'll try to figure it out until we can pass the mic. Uh, we'll begin with some background, and because uh, we're on APA turf here, I'll start with the uh, uh, acknowledge the, uh, I'd say, classic study of design review in the Chicago metropolitan area by Peggy Glassford. It uh, actually featured Glenview as one of the early examples. And so we don't have a lot of time for uh, background review today. You know, I urge you to go to some of these sources if you want uh, further information. Uh, in short, much of what we're talking about is based on early examples from the East Coast that really came out of the historic preservation movement and was extended more broadly, uh, culminating with a surge of appearance codes in the 1970s. Uh, many of those are with us today. Uh, pausing, as an attorney by trade, I do have to note that uh, some of the cases that are discussed in that early publication are now... Uh, outdated politely. There's been legislation that has really resolved a lot of the issues uh, back in time. So um, keep that in mind and uh, there's more recent material available. It, it was actually this uncertainty that prompted some initial scenic Illinois and Chaddock Institute research on the state of design review in the Chicago area. Uh, this somewhat weathered chart of that time shows the towns and the black dots that had some form of design review. Uh, what's less clear, if you focus on the dots, is the concentration of design review commissions and committees in the north and northwest suburbs. And uh, beyond that, uh, the intensity of the uh, practices there and the, the uh, degree of scrutiny sometimes compared to the uh, other areas around the, the metropolitan area. Uh, and one of the things we've tried to do through the Design Review Network is actually promote that dialogue, dialogue among all the uh, towns and suburbs in the area. But I have to emphasize that approaches do vary still. And um, again, there's more data available in publications. Uh, this one, which I authored for DePaul Community Appearance Regulation, uh, should still be available through the website. And um, you'll see here, for example, how the scope of control varies. Uh, the bottom bar, while most communities will have some form of commercial design review, there's relatively fewer that uh, weigh into the residential arena. And uh, this is a significant distinction, as we'll see uh, from some of Bob's broader research. Uh, and when you get into the residential, there's the overlap with the Historic Preservation Commissions, which we won't be talking about as much. And uh, finally, I uh, would note that more and more towns are moving to some form of administrative or staff-based approaches to design review. But our discussion today is going to be on more of the uh, traditional community methods that are really commission or committee based. So your town may have some form of appearance commission or uh, often referred to as design review boards. I've uh, hesitated to use this uh, old clip art graphic, but I think it does 
convey the, uh, what can be the discretionary nature of design review, uh, and I brought on the spirit of the recent Olympics. Uh, usually you don't have this type of unanimity, but it does, I think, convey some of the diversity that you can find in these commissions, which uh, can range from three to seven members, typically, but uh, that membership can include architects, designers, uh, planners, of course, uh, and oftentimes businessmen and, uh, and interested citizens. So, you know, that's something we'll be seeing. Uh, the training and support for these people is uh, a critical mission of MDRN generally, and we uh, try to get commissioners to the meetings. I hope we have, I think we have some here. Uh, but today we want to look at more deeply at the communication techniques and um, the processes that uh, have been revealed in Bob's research. And let me turn it over to you, Bob. Good evening. It's nice to be with you today. Um, I'm going to just dive right into what I have to say in the interest of time. I hope we have an opportunity to uh, have more conversation through your questions later. I'm going to start with a quote. The charge of this commission is to make a recommendation to the village board on the appearance of the proposed statue and if it meets the village's standards for excellence. Section 285C of the village code states that a public building should set a standard for excellence. No building, gate, fence, lamp, or ornamentation should be erected or remodeled upon land belonging to the village or upon any public grounds under the jurisdiction of the village without first obtaining recommendation from the commission. With these words, the village planner in Glen Ellen, Illinois, began her summary of a petition in the village's architectural review commission. The standards of excellence to which she refers are not explicitly spelled out in the local building codes. While the code does describe design features, it is the commissioner's sensibilities and lived experience that ultimately informs decisions on whether or not public buildings reach the level of excellence within these design standards. In this presentation, I explore questions of how design standards figure in an overall urban planning strategy, specifically how they contribute to a community brand or look in various Cook County suburbs. Such questions are important in understanding contemporary placemaking in U.S. suburbs and other localities where governments have embraced design review as part of their planning process. Placemaking is any social process through which a bounded space takes on recognizable meaning and values for a group of people. An appearance code represents a means of regulating buildings' outward appearance to achieve a specific urban form. These codes help create predictable streetscapes. Unlike health, safety, and fire standards, design standards are primarily aesthetic choices related to visual features. Thus, as a compelling community interest, they are harder to justify on a case-by-case -case basis. It becomes rather difficult to explain to homeowners, for example, that the addition of a second floor to their bungalow does not conform to local guidelines. 
the benefit of adhering to consistent municipal design standards probably seems quite distant to developers trying to uh, build a leasable commercial space. Yet without such enforced design standards, the community look that many municipalities seek will never develop. Even though this is an aesthetic program, it is highly political. The very existence of design standards favors those locals who benefit from rising property values and investment over those locals looking merely to use their existing properties effectively, as well as national corporations seeking to brand leased spaces for their outlets. To study the design review process, I chose nine Chicago area municipalities. I interviewed their planners and videotaped their board meetings between March 11, 2010 and September 15, 2010. The suburbs I chose all have well-established design review boards, and these communities are listed in Table 1. Uh, the Chaddock Institute provided me with an institutional base that was recognized and respected by the municipal governments I was approaching. And uh, John uh, had recently organized the network of suburban planners that were involved in design review. I was able to meet them through him. And I chose suburbs I did because their planners were active in this network and were interested in facilitating my research. The observations were conducted between and during a period in which the number of submitted projects under review were among the fewest since the board's creation in the 1990s. Around this time, the restricted credit market and ensuing recession in Midwest construction industry was in full swing. During interviews, planners in the selected suburbs were asked to describe how the design review had changed as a result of the housing bubble burst after September 2008, and all of them noted that there were significantly fewer demolition requests than in the three previous years. I only observed one demolition petition in all of my visits to boards in 2010. The planners in suburbs where residential properties were reviewed, and there were only a few of those, noted that there were far fewer single homeowner projects after 2008. I observed four single home petitions in these suburbs. Planners also observed an increase in the number of requests for variances for leased properties. I observed six petitions for such variances. Uh, they observed uh, the number of signage and branding requests to increase, and I observed 20 signage and branding cases. Finally, they saw a number of large multi-unit, they saw the number of large multi-unit developments decrease. Observations in 2010, then, offer a different set of opportunities than op observations that would have occurred in 2006 or 2008 or 2014. Since the history of design standards in these communities is barely 20 years old, there probably was never a norm against which to compare the kinds of cases I was accumulating. Most communities are intent on defending their design standards in much the same way that major corporations want to protect their corporate brands. To illustrate this tendency, I'll explain how this works in a case in Glen Ellen. I'm, I have a lot of cases, as you can see, and I could have focused this on any one of the cases. I'm, I'm 
choosing Glen Ellen, not because the planner isn't here tonight, <coughs> uh, but because um, I, I think it illustrates a case that is neither typical nor atypical uh, and allows us to discuss uh, aspects of design review that are, never, are not that obvious in other cases. There's the entry sign for Glen Ellen. The town of Glen Ellen is currently situated on the site of a popular 19th century spa that was located west of Chicago and accessible to the Quad cities of Iowa via a railway. Uh, the spa has long since disappeared, but the rail line continues to serve the town as an easy means of commuting to nearby centers of commerce. Glen Ellen became a viable bedroom community after World War I and mainly attracted upper-middle-class residents. The obelisk-shaped street signage for which the city is known originated sometime in the 1970s. The downtown is currently in the 12th year of a uh, redevelopment plan. Glen Ellen has used design standards since the mid-1990s. Uh, its uh, architectural commission has five members, including professional architects and developers, uh, and um, all of them were appointed by uh, the mayor and, um, I guess, ratified by the town council, village council. So their process is as follows. Following a staff review after... Ah, I'm going right into the case. Following a staff review after its near completion a new medical office building in Glen Ellen was found to be out of compliance with the board-approved plan. Some of the shield panels attached to the building were incorrectly painted white. In keeping with the community design standards of all earth tones for commercial buildings, these features were supposed to be light green. It's... Uh, I see. These are the panels that we're talking about that are now green. This is the finished building, but at the time when the developers were brought back into the commission, all of these panels were white, including the soffits. Uh, this coloring was supposed to be green. Uh, the petitioner asked the board to approve a revised plan that permitted them to keep the white panels while admitting to the error and explaining that an architect looking at the wrong elevation drawings when ordering the panels had made an understandable mistake. The board, for its part, asserted that it actually had three options with regard to the contested building panels. They could allow the owner to keep the panels white, they could order that they be painted green, or they could have the owner replace them with green panels. This case represents an issue of compliance with approved ordinances. As one commissioner put it, if this petitioner is allowed to put up whatever they want and we then approve it after the fact, what is the good of having these hearings at all? Now speaking in the minority, a more recent addition to the board stated that he did not believe that the white shield panels were so unattractive that they necessitated that the owner should pay for their replacement. The majority of the board, however, was willing to consider the costs to the owner in devising a remedy, but refused to compromise on the color. Eventually, the builder agreed to replace the panels 
as the best solution for getting the building in use sooner. To the casual passerby, the question of whether the panels are green or white might seem irrelevant. The buildings on the adjacent commercial strip do conform to these guidelines, so the action might be justified for the sake of consistency. Consistency does seem to be a strong value underlying the development of design standards. However, the commission was not defending green over white. They were defending the right of the town to impose green if that was what was desired. In all the cases I observed, this was the strongest assertion of home rule with respect to design standards. Design standards are currently a major force in placemaking. They impact class diversity disproportionately to racial or ethnic diversity. In Chicago's suburbs, design standards have a class homogenizing effect on community life. When these standards work as intended, new investment in the community tends to accrue at the higher end of the land rent spectrum. New development is located in choice areas and marketed to affluent buyers. While it seems imprecise to associate the term gentrification with communities that gentrified two generations ago, the process is similar. The social diversity, then, tends to occur between suburban communities rather than within a single suburban community. Appearance codes are economic development tools. Development outcomes are largely dependent on the quality and objectives of the community plan that the code implements. Such plans, in turn, are based on an urban imaginary, an ideology widely shared among the community's political and economic elite. This imaginary links the community's past to an imagined future, whereby a town is beautiful, stable, finished, orderly, uncongested by traffic, filled with symbols of community aspiration, egalitarian with a vital middle class, and possessing a strong sense of place grounded in viable local enterprises and architectural styles. That such a place has never and probably can never exist is irrelevant to such an urban imaginary. The fit between this urban imaginary and the lived experience of residents and shopkeepers determines whether or not design standards succeed in creating a cohesive community look. There will always be construction decisions that violate permit agreements, such as the Glen Ellen building. But the public review process is a political dialogue between the municipality and its citizens. The more permanent participants in this dialogue are board members and planners. The composition and qualification of these participants disproportionately shape the outcome of the review. Boards and commissions staffed by professional designers tend to interpret standards and permit variances differently than non-degree professionals, non-design professionals. Boards with a preponderance of new and untested members are usually more flexible in their application of standards than long-serving boards. Communities with experienced and well-trained planners who understand how to prepare petitioners for successfully presenting their cases achieve higher compliance with design standards than those where planners are less experienced or distracted by other projects. For all these reasons, design standards have variable degrees of success 
as strategies for placemaking in Chicago suburbs. The most common way municipal representatives preserve these standards is by invoking the public-private distinction. Boards and planners often claim that uh, design standards pertain only to publicly accessible space, but never private space. Nevertheless, the more common features of design standards, such as where buildings are placed on a lot, the heights of buildings, the size of windows, the placements of doors and, and windows, roof lines, and the massing of the building have a direct impact on private space. I'm going to stop at that point because I've pretty much exhausted the generalizations I can make from that particular case, but I hope we can get into some of these points in more detail in the discussion. From Bob's work and talking to him about a number of the cases, uh, including the green and white one we heard about, uh, you can see the difficulty in balancing the clear standards versus case flexibility. There we go. I've got the visual here that conveys that this balancing is not easy and sometimes uh, looks a little cockeyed. But as a transition to some of our broader discussion, I want to more quickly go through a few of the points that I think we can glean for our best practices uh, and how we can use existing planning resources. Uh, first, the availability of our MDRN network for benchmarking, the uh, use of updated design guidelines, uh, the importance of community engagement to determine the look that Bob's referring to, and um, finally just touching on the significance of the process in these instances. I've repeatedly referred to the MDRN Municipal Design Review Network, but haven't had a chance to explain it. As you've gathered by now, the, the key point is it's a multidisciplinary group of staff planners, architects, uh, designers, and uh, again, uh, as we said earlier with the commission members, you know, other interested parties. And we see it as a complement to APA activities at all levels. Uh, most specifically, we put on a number of programs with the uh, CMS chapter where we've been able to focus more on the design aspects and the fit with the planning. That is a quick measure of our progress. Uh, we've been doing this for six years of basically quarterly events and um, have had of over 100 municipalities participating one way or another. As you can see here on the right, our uh, typical approach is discussion meetings and workshops. But on the left, uh, the highlight is usually our summer mobile workshop, which is on site and um, a chance to uh, really check out how these things are working. Uh, despite the appearance, you don't have to wear a uniform with a sport coat. But it's advised. Um, the, the, pre, the most important uh, aspect, I think, though, is the formalization with the Chaddock Institute of an advisory committee that's been appointed by Chaddock, uh, including various representatives here. We have Tom Ferrasi as our current chair, Tom Wave. And uh, <laughs> we have Susan Creases as the vice chair here. And um, hope you'll have a chance to talk to them. But this allows us to sustain the level of professional input uh, Susan is an architect, uh, Tom a planner, to see you know, what, is, what are the tools that are being used in some of these uh, areas. Uh, and I'll use again the example of design guidelines. Uh, Bob noted the importance of invoking standards in these cases. And uh, I, I believe that up-to-date, particularly illustrated design guidelines are so important to 
emphasize this aspect. Here is an uh, example from Glenview uh, for downtown uh, district signage. And uh, you can see it's a very direct approach of saying okay or no uh, with discussion of the rationale there. Again, it's a guideline and a reference point. But my personal experience having worked with a broad array of design guidelines and on all topics in Glenview, that it's uh, so important to have local examples that are illustrated for reference of uh, precedence and also to have uh, active participation by the businesses and the citizens and the vendors that are be, being affected by this process, as we've seen some of the examples. Uh, and this leads to a quick broader consideration of the public participation in the process, uh, whether you call it civic engagement or I like to call it uh, community engagement or public participation. Um, I assume everyone knows the traditional methods here and the challenges of meetings, even with uh, more current approaches of using visual preferences surveys. Uh, I believe that uh, the real action in this arena is uh, with the new technologies to address some of the issues that uh, we've seen in the Glen Ellen example, but uh, using social and digital media to um, get a broader base for input and distribution of what the approaches are. Uh, interactive ma mapping is uh, shown here to highlight where the areas of concern and where the examples are located. And uh, most dramatically, uh, computer visualization techniques that can show in 3D form you know, what is going to be the impact of the proposal being considered. Um, and these can be used at any district or even here as the neighborhood level, which is you know, one of my personal interests, um, being able to focus to this degree. And you can see more. I've got a uh, uh, website and blog that to discuss this. But again, what we're trying to do is to determine, define, and communicate what is this community look that uh, Bob has talked about achieving. And uh, before we get back to that important part of it, I just wanted to note the significance of the process. Uh, again, for the record, there's a wide review, wide range of review processes. This is one, just one shown here that is uh, seemingly complex but detailed but shows how the uh, review relates to the approval and under what circumstances cases can be fast-tracked. Everyone wants a better, pro better process, but no one wants to spend time talking about it, so that's understandable. But I think you've uh, noticed that planning um, APA events, some communities actually talking about their new expedited procedures for review as a uh, economic development tool or distinction. So this is an important part that we're not going to focus on much tonight, but I, I believe that the efficiency of the process and the availability as staff, as Bob just noted, is a critical factor in the success or failure of the design review process. So uh, we can take a closer look at some of these uh, tools in the Q&A, but uh, let's take a quick further look at the implications from some of Bob's study. We can, we can just have a background slide here, or you can turn it up. Can we pull up some chairs? Oh, oh, I guess uh, I thought you had. All right, let's get right to it then. 
you had a lot of observations packed into your last minutes of the presentation. Break those out a little with respect to some of the benefits of the design review process overall. Well, when it works, the benefits of design review is a uh, relatively stable uh, economic growth pattern to the community. Uh, there are lots of incentives for investment that uh, obtain from having a consistent community look. Uh, there's great opportunities for attracting, um, attracting new residents and new businesses. It, uh, I think that that's what attracts most people to uh, design review in the first place, or at least that was the rationale back in the 90s. I think once it was instituted, it began to take on a life of its own. Uh, politicians certainly like it because they can point to it and say, look at all the wonderful things we're doing to beautify our village. Um, I think planners like it because it gives them um, more opportunity to uh, talk with petitioners about the fit between their project and the community. And I think that in the long run, this leads to probably a more efficient planning process, at least at the project by project uh, phase of planning. Now you want the gonna, downside, right? <laughs> well, I was going to give you a breather. Let's talk about the benefits again for this group. But uh, we have as a backdrop here a slide of community look. And uh, this is a Glenview example featuring some civic buildings. And I think you can see at least some of the consistencies of the material. Uh, you've used the term community look at quite a bit, Bob, uh, in the past conversations. Could you tell me a little more, tell us a little more about uh, what's significant in shaping that, particularly the standards that you had talked about? I referenced design guidelines. What were some of the other uh, standards that you'd seen? Um, well, I, I think I'm preaching to the choir here on what the standards are. They uh, usually have to do with, um, I think I even mentioned it in the paper, uh, things like setbacks and roof lines, window placement, window size and door size, uh, massing. I'm probably forgetting a whole bunch okay. of them, but so signage, of course. And, of course, the color of panels in some communities. So more code references to the form is yep. yeah, what you're talking about, the standards. Yeah. Uh, Be careful how you use the word form, though. Oh, it has well, other connotations. Well, uh, we'll get back to that. <laughs> um, you had mentioned, what would you see as some of the concerns of uh, design review from your experience? I think any effort that uh, causes individual property owners to feel constrained in their taste choices, in their aesthetic choices, is inherently conflictive. There are some communities in which uh, whole segments of the community are at war against the uh, review commission because of a, a difference in interest, a difference in, in uh, where the stakeholders are at. Uh, and this leads to some quite distorted municipal elections from time to time. Um, even at the local homeowner level, for those communities that do pay attention to things like whether bungalows can have second floors or not, uh, there is the political decision that has been made that the aesthetic interests of the property owner come in second to the 
aesthetic interests of the community as a whole. Uh, this um, is honored more often only in the extreme. You know, if someone in a historic district decides that they really need to paint their bungalow purple or something like that, there might be an intervention. Uh, there usually is an effort to allow certain amount of variation, but there is a homogenizing effect uh, on individual property owner taste. Now, if you, uh, if you feel, uh, for whatever political values you have, that property owners should have complete use rights over their property, then the imposition of external taste considerations for what the public can see on that property is a violation of that. Uh, now, these variations in taste at the property owner level could be uh, ethnically based, they could be class-based, they could be historically based. In other words, they're not just arbitrary, gee, I really like purple walls. They may actually have a basis in a, a community life which the property owner has participated in, but which is not shared by the wider social field of the municipality. Uh, and I think that maybe not in Chicago's suburbs, but certainly in other parts of the country that I know of, uh, there are, um, the, the architectural review becomes an opportunity for the airing of these conflicts. And it's not always a very easy process. We've talked about general positives and concerns. Uh, let me fold them into one. Uh, earlier you mentioned branding, which is something that we've, I think many of us have heard a lot of in the Chicago suburban area particularly, and we've discussed among uh, some of our, our group the uh, marketing aspects of that and you know what the value is and how. I'd be interested in your perspective as a cultural anthropologist, if I'm describing you appropriately, as to what branding means and the uh, significance of it. Yes, I admit it. I am a cultural anthropologist, but uh, I'm, I hope to recover from that one of these days. Um, you might ask yourself, what in the world does an anthropologist have as an interest in these sorts of things? Um, I'm interested in the process through which groups of people make meaning out of their lives together. And the meaning that they impose on place or that they extract from place is one of the more important ways in which that happens. And I've been concerned as a, as a researcher with questions about placemaking uh, for over 25 years. Uh, I mostly focus on issues of landscape and landscape planning, but uh, this project gave me an opportunity to spend more time thinking about the, the built environment as well, the hardscape. Um, from the point of view of the kinds of ideas that inform my view of space, branding occupies really a very small piece of it. Do you remember the Andy Warhol painting of not just one Campbell's Soup can, but an entire array of Campbell's, soup, uh, Campbell's Tomato Soup cans stacked on top of each other, about seven high and about six wide, I think it is? That's known as an ensemble. It's a, a duplication 
of the design image over and over again until the duplication itself becomes the message rather than any individual can or the iconic Campbell's logo. And I think Warhol was sort of exploring the power of the ensemble in that particular canvas. I think of branding along those same lines, that the power of branding doesn't reside in the uh, iconic signage. Rather, it resides in the replication of that sign message over and over again through, through space or through time. In the case of design review, it is through space. And what the design standards do is that they create this experience of duplication and replication. Uh, and um, that's why these can be very subtle differences in standards from one community to another and still have a profound effect on uh, what you see as you drive through them. Um, anyway, that's, that's my take on branding. Well, let's take up those subtle examples then, and uh, we'll move from the big picture of the building with the uh, eyebrow windows there till, uh, to a reminder of it. Uh, this was an example um, in our community where this became a very heated discussion on the public library building. Um, uh, actually, public awareness and controversy as to the cost of the window to, uh, versus where it would be placed in terms of uh, creating some interest and in the, uh, the right away at the street level there. And so I use this just as an example, Bob, of uh, from your travels, uh, could you share any other more extreme examples of uh, good cases or bad cases that we can learn from? Uh, that's a tough one, John. Uh, John knows that actually most of my research has been conducted in Europe, and he wants me to come up with some European examples for you that are sort of counterpositive to American design standards. Uh, are any of you familiar with the work of a 19th century planner by the name of Camillo Sitta? One person? Okay. He was referenced in a novel I was reading the other day. Was he? Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. Anyway, um, for those of you who don't know Sitta's work, he's, he's worth looking into. He's usually uh, castigated from most of the contemporary textbooks because he was um, uh, considered very old-fashioned. Uh, he was certainly an opponent to the kind of modernist uh, transportation-first planning uh, that permeated most of the central part, the, the middle part of the 19th century. In fact, he, he considered traffic to be the enemy. Sorry, Joe. Uh, and transportation was the problem, not the solution. So as you can see, he, he wasn't very popular with the modernists. Uh, he made a study of small towns in Italy, and particularly their squares. And he came up with uh, a design standard, a, a design analysis known as the turbine square, uh, a square where when you stand in the middle of it, and you try to look down any of the streets that empty into the square, you cannot see a vista. You can only see the wall of a building. So that you have the feeling of being enclosed by the buildings, even though egress is quite easy. Just walk down any street and you're out. But visually, it appears closed. Uh, as you can imagine, that would be just horrendous for automobile traffic and that's why all of those Italian cities 
became pedestrian zones because no no car the cars would just be piled on top of each other. Now I bring that up because there are um, lots of European design uh, motifs, if you will, which um, the Europeans have been arguing about for over 150 years. We don't really have that kind of tradition in the U.S. We don't have all of these alternative urban models that we can look to. All of our cities developed, with the possible exception of some of the East Coast ones that I'm familiar with, but most of the ones west of the Hudson and west of the of the Chesapeake uh, developed uh, under modernist principles in which uh, uh, the railroad or uh, later on the highway uh, became the main reason for the urban agglomeration. Uh, as a result, uh, our design vocabulary is rather impoverished and our design standards tend to be um, rather narrow. I think the, the Europeans have a broader palette to draw from uh, this doesn't necessarily make their job any easier, uh, since it oftentimes comes into direct conflict with uh, many of their stakeholders. I'm particularly aware of some uh, landscaping for green zones in a number of Central European cities uh, that have languished for years. They're perfectly reasonable proposals and would really enhance quality of life and environmental sustainability and all of those wonderful hot-button issues uh, and eminent domain isn't a problem, uh, but they run into uh, all sorts of obstacles from various commercial interests who uh, fear that their ability to move things around or their ability to have their customers access their service, services uh, is being impaired. So uh, just because the vocabulary is expanded on the other side of the Great Lake doesn't mean that the design process is any easier. I'm going to try to turn the tables and give you a multiple choice question. Uh, actually, you can decide which to uh, which answer. But uh, in reading and talking to you, Bob, I noticed several themes that recur. The one is the broader vision versus the individual case. Um, I know in some instances you talked about the experts versus the novices when it comes to this determination, and um, you know, finally, you know, we've talked about the composition of the commissions, and I've talked, mentioned several times the mix that um, you may see. Uh, out of those three things, do, th do they come together in the sense of would you have any observations or recommendations as to what is the best mix of, uh, I should say, expertise in discussing these uh, decisions? My ideal design commission. Yes. And I think it's a real-world question because uh, I think if you talk to people in the group, uh, they would say, well, architects are good, but not too many. Right, 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 right. Um, okay. Uh, first of all, the total number of members on the board should be larger, not smaller. Uh, I think a minimum of seven, uh, going up to as many as 12. And I think that the reason for having such a larger board is that you get um, more dialogue, you get more conversation, you get the airing of more views. I think the proportion of um, professionally trained designers of various kinds, not just architects, but also landscape architects, historic preservation specialists, 
um, environmental engineers and contractors, which I, who I also consider to be design professionals, uh, should be uh, a majority of the board, but only a majority of the board, and that um, ordinary citizens with no design experience should make up the rest of the board. Now, the reason for having that mix of expert and novice is two reasons. First of all, it forces the experts to articulate uh, their position without relying on jargon and without relying on disciplinary standards. They actually have to come up with a municipally cogent, un understandable reason for why they do what they do. Um, and secondly, I think that over time, the lay people then get educated uh, to the design regime uh, and are able to then carry the message out uh, into the community more effectively than maybe the experts can. I, I noticed that uh, we are getting short in terms of allowing time for open discussion. I had some fascinating and more probing questions here, Bob, but I'm going to pass on those to give others a chance to, to ask. Um, are there any questions from the group at this point? And just as a reminder, just put your hands up, and I'll come to you with your microphone so we can record it for the podcast. Yeah, Joe Sweeterman, uh, my my question is whether my question is whether the mere act of having a design review dialogue and having a discussion about what's important in our community serves as kind of a glue within a town that has benefits, social benefits, of giving people a sense of control of their community which makes them more engaged in, in discussions about the community's future, which is obviously a difficult thing in the internet age where people are aloof, they're not connected to their neighborhood. And either of you guys could comment on sort of that broader civic role that the mere discussion brings. Go, you go first, Bob. There are a number of communities that uh, record their hearings on video and then put them on the internet on the municipal site for everybody to see. Uh, and they are few and far between. That's quite an investment in municipal resources to be able to pull that off. So as you can imagine, it's the wealthier suburbs that do it. Uh, but you're not likely to see the Design Review Commission hold its hearing at halftime on Thanksgiving Day as the two neighboring high schools play their rivalry game for the mm -hmm. year, you know, the local equivalent of the Super Bowl. Uh, nor do you find an awful lot of citizens who aren't directly involved in the petition showing up for the hearings. I mean, let's face it. What would you rather do after a hard day of work? Go to a municipal review commission hearing or stay home and watch uh, some mindless comedies on TV? Uh, and those are the choices that our um, our fellow citizens are making, and as a result, they're not participating in these conversations. I would only add, Joe, and the reason I passed is I would be rehashing some of the points I made earlier that I think uh, the technology is really a tool here for greater participation, and uh, realistically, as Bob points out, probably the most effective way of getting it in this day and age. Other questions? Well, um, they're percolating. Bob, uh, one thing I would have asked you is do you have any suggestions for uh, either presenter? I, I guess let's start with presenters uh, appearing before the commissions uh, in terms of what would be the most uh, effective emphasis. 
John has had experience with this. Uh, at his uh, commission meetings, he's had some of the most opaque presentations I've ever experienced. Um, I think that uh, folks go into these hearings thinking... No, you're not referring to my presentation. Uh, okay. Commissioner's <laughs> uh, presentations. Uh, I think that uh, people going into these hearings uh, with petitions uh, who don't avail themselves of um, some significant conversations with the planning department are putting themselves at a disadvantage. Uh, the planning uh, department knows the personalities, knows the culture of the commission inside and out. They know what kinds of petitions are going to work and which ones aren't, and they can coach people along to make much more effective presentations. Uh, it's one of the biggest uh, variables from place to place. Um, as I cruised the northern suburbs looking for these commission hearings uh, as to um, which petitioners had an easy time going through the process and which ones didn't. And it was directly related to how much time they spent with the planning department ahead of time. If there's another question, we'll take it first. Uh, while we're doing that, uh, Bob and I had talked, and I sometimes mentioned that I've heard over a thousand cases myself on an appearance commission, and I was uh, often surprised in sharing how rarely the uh, presenters would convey their overall plan or concept for a development or uh, a modification was, that was being proposed to articulate, it, to articulate it for the benefit of the group. And uh, I think that was your experience as well, Bob, wasn't it? That's correct. Uh, there's one environmental kind of question here that I want to raise that didn't actually come out in, in the course of this discussion. Uh, I, I'll use sort of a distant example. You brought up the question of, of the, the European context. So I'll mention this uh, just to set the stage here very, very quickly. Um, it was just the other, I think it was Saturday night. My wife and I were watching this uh, Andrea Bocelli concert on, WT, on Channel 11. And there's, there he is singing outdoors in this gorgeous town of Portofino, port town in Italy. And having been to Venice last year, I, said, I have spent half the time thinking, God, i got to get on a plane and just go right back there. That's such, you know, such a wonderful place. But when you look at many of the towns that you're profiling here, it's one sort of town after another out in the suburbs of Chicago where the geography doesn't look all that much different from one to the next. But we do have a few of those places like Lake County where there are some lakes. There's bits of iconic scenery. I, I wonder if you could comment on the impact of that kind of geography when the natural setting lends itself. I mean, certainly places like, you know, some of the towns in Colorado are clearly influenced by the natural setting and its influence on, on the kind of town people want to put in that setting? It's a really good question, and I hope that you invite me back to talk about the issue of nature in planning mm -hmm. at some point, because it is very complicated. Uh, just the whole definition of what constitutes nature, what constitutes a natural landscape, what constitutes a landscape, how manipulatable is it? How desirable is it to manipulate 
the landscape? And so on. these are big questions around which um, there's a lot of disagreement and a lot of nuance. Uh, and um, it's a question that rarely enters into um, most planning dialogues as well because it's, it's just taken for granted. Nature is stuff that is growing. And that's, in fact, not what nature is. I see the clock is ticking down, Bob. Is there any uh, question that I should have asked you or observation you didn't get off your chest? And then I will have a 30-second closing. I feel thoroughly exercised. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you still look sharp. This is an old slide that uh, Bob touched on. I think this is more than just how we want things to look, but some pretty deep values that get involved. And so I want to close. Well, we haven't had a chance to talk about new directions and form-based codes. I'd like to talk to anyone after that is interested in that aspect. But uh, a closing quote that I enjoy, and it's from the work, The Architecture of Happiness, uh, great terms. Uh, In essence, what works of design and architecture talk to us about is the kind of life that would be most appropriately unfold within and around them. So I think to me that sums up uh, why we do and should care about this and uh, be glad to talk to uh, people afterwards. Let's have a round of applause for our speakers. On behalf of the American Planning Association, I want to thank Robert Rotenberg and John Hedrick for a thought-provoking and informative program on design review. Thanks also to the many APA staff members who help make this program possible every month. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. I'm David Morley.